Welcome, all you weirdos, Krakoans, and everyone who bet the under on the big game. It's time for another Weird Dose of X. I continue to be Jason, and speaking with me today, while wearing an incredibly detailed Cupid cosplay outfit, is our buddy Ruben. Hey, buddy, how are you today? Hey, how's it going? So we have two two books to talk about today. Uh, we have both number ones. One an actual number one, one kind of not, but we'll get into that. Uh, the first one is Bishop War College, number one. Number second one is Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants, number one, which is part of our Sins of Sinister event. We don't have any news this week, so hey, let's get right into the books. Uh, the first one I'll talk about is Bishop War College, written by Jay Holtham, who's a writer who's mostly written for Marvel TV shows, from what I can tell. I think this may be his first actual comic. Uh, pencils by Sean Damien Hill, inks by Victor Nava with Roberto Roberto Poggi, uh, colors by Espen Grundigern, letters by Travis Lanham, and designed by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. That's that's a lot of people to make this one little book. And uh, I don't know where you are, Ruben, but I'd put this miniseries tentatively in the same kind of category as Sabretooth and the Exiles, where it's clearly part of the Krakoan era, but really only, I think, in one direction. It's taking the basic Krakoan status quo as a given, but I don't expect events from this minute to really feed back into the the other books. You you get that feeling too, or do you think I'm off base? Yeah, I think it's one you can skip. And I wasn't that thrilled with it when I read it. I want to care, I guess. <laughs> I certainly like Bishop, and it looks like they're going to be you know going to an era that a lot of us are very fond of. But uh, the writing to me is a little weak in that you just kind of got like wild emotional swings. It seems like every character is like yelling or crying. It's just very extreme. It's a lot of that, and it gets into some of that therapy talk kind of dialogue that always turns me off. So yeah, I think we're probably on a similar page here. Uh, it it had some interesting things to it. I I don't know all that much about Bishop. I was not a comic reader in that period where he became you know kind of a big thing. So I'd like to know more about him, but I don't know that this miniseries is going to do that. So we start off with Bishop, who, remember, was made Captain Commander more than a year ago, back in Inferno Number 1. We really haven't seen him do a whole lot of Captain Commander things, but he, he that's what he's been. He, he Right now, he's training up a new team of mutants to help defend the island of Krakoa. These mutants are armor. We know armor. Uh, her deal is that she can create psionic armor. No problem there. Next is Surge, Noriko Ishida. She's another... Not as major, at least not to me, not as well known as Armor, but she's been around for a while. Uh, she's made a couple background appearances in the Krakoan era, but I think this is the first time she's really doing things on the main stage in Krakoa, and she has electrical absorption powers. Next, we have Aura, or perhaps Aura Charles. This is a Vita Ayala character. Uh, a version of, of this character appeared in the Age of X-Men event that was created when they needed to buy time for Jonathan Hickman to do his hoxpox planning stuff. This is that character's first appearance, as far as I can tell, in the main 616 continuity. She has flight and psionic energy powers, and also she has butterfly wings, so that's pretty. Uh, next is Cam Long, another Vita Ayala character, more recently from the late New Mutants run. Uh, Cam looks a bit like a white tiger, kind of furry with some stripes, and Cam has enhanced senses and reflexes. And finally, Amas. Amas? Amas? Amu Amas Amat? I don't know. Amas, I guess. A Steve Orlando character from Marauders, which I don't think either of us have been reading. Uh, it seems that in that series, Amas became host to 
or a combination of three different beings, something like that. So a mass has powers to combine minds and bodies together and is almost, I don't know if it's a Firestar kind of thing uh, with multiple personalities in there. Not exactly sure what a mass's deal is. So Bishop at first is this super, super stereotypical drill sergeant type, right? All this yelling, nothing ever good enough for him. He doesn't actually call them maggots, but he's probably about to, or maybe he would if weren't already a character named Maggot. Uh, and then Danny Moonstar pops onto the screen and says like two words to him, and he folds like a napkin. And this is where that therapy talk really comes in that made me go yuck. Uh, and he immediately turns into the touchy-feely, let's all work hard and do our best kind of leader, which is fine, but the transition did not feel at all earned to me. So what what did you think of Bishop's character here in this this first part. Yes, yeah, that, this is the stuff that drove me insane. So we get like four or five pages of him just yelling at them and frothing at the mouth uh, pictures. And then uh, we get Danny saying, you need to stop bullying them. He's like, I'm being a bully? <laughs> he starts to cry, I mean, basically. It's just, it's just like, really? <laughs> is, is that Bishop's character again? I'm not super familiar with Bishop as a character, but that's not what I would have expected from the Captain Commander. I don't think of him as a jerk, right? I, I can see him coming down, but it just feels like that's a weird thing to disarm him with, right? I could see, I could see something else, a, a little more of a conversation, and then he kind of cools down. But yeah, it's weird. So at this point, now that Bishop's learned his lesson, he uses wrong slide and tempo to create sort of an underground danger room situation where the new team can train over and over again in a time bubble and. You know, it's almost like a chill in the vault deal where they can practice over and over again and, and get better more quickly. Kind of a neat thought. But at this point, they are accidentally interrupted by the Fenris twins, who I'm going to say are the only mutant villains that the X office will never, ever even try to rehabilitate. They're never getting a hero arc for the, for the Fenris. Now, these, these uh, two, I think they say they're working with Orcus. Did you get that? What's going on here? Yeah. I'm okay with that because Orcus has um, elements of Hydra, and if you recall, like how they're combined, and the Fenris twins are obviously deeply connected to Hydra, being the, the son and daughter of um, Baron von Strucker. Okay, I, I guess so. Now, uh, Orcus being on Krakoa, or I guess under Krakoa, or in Krakoa, should be a super huge deal. So I'll, I will see if that actually plays out to be big, or if this is just going to be the means to get something happen. There's like Although this, we will say, I will say this is what the second time the Orcus has been on the island in an issue that's probably off the real core continuity, which is somewhat funny. With Legion of X, right? right. We had, well, that's, that seemed more core, but again, it was, it was very quick. It was, oh, they're here, oh, they're gone. <laughs> and now they're back again. <laughs> right, but at least in there, we learned that uh, uh, they had, Nimrod had, quote, hacked the gates. So that seems to have some sort of continuing important plot relevance. So we'll see if this has anything like that. Right now, there's some kind of mole man type tunneling machine going on here under Krakoa. And we don't know what the goal is, what they're up to. It can't be any good. It's, it's Orcus and the Fenris twins. And at this point, two things happen. There is a blast of Blightswill goo from the tunneling machine that takes away the powers of all those, those kids Bishop is training. And then number two, some hoodoo from those twins transports Bishop to what appears to be an alternate dimension. And in this dimension, this is where apparently the X-Men, or at least Cyclops and Jean, are black. The end. Like in the 90s outfit. Yeah, okay. And 
I mean, it makes sense if you're going to do timey-wimey multiversal stuff with any X-Men character, Bishop's a pretty good choice, right? He comes from uh, a possible future. He got sent back in time and kind of got, got stuck here. Uh, and I think that my favorite pages here were the dream sequence where Bishop kind of thinks back to his old life. I think the art there looks the best. I wonder if maybe that's where that second inker came in because it has a different look than all the other pages, a, to me, a, a better look. Uh, so that was kind of cool. But yeah, the, the idea of well, multiverses in general, I'm kind of, I'm kind of worn out on, right? Uh, not just Jason Aaron's Avengers, but especially Jason Aaron's Avengers have just made me want to put the multiverse away for a while. It's just, it, it gives the writers too much freedom, right? They can do anything. So nothing seems to really matter because it's just the multiverse. And this particular multiverse, if it is like what was teased in the solicits and what it looks like on the cover, if it is, hey, this is the universe where the X-Men are black, I don't particularly trust 2023 Marvel to do like a nuanced, subtle, intriguing story with that setup. It's possible, but they're going to have to convince me they can do it. So that's that's where this issue leaves off. So I'm sure I'll read the next issue. I don't know if it's something we'll need to talk about. So, Ruben, it sounds like you're not about to try to twist my arm and convince me otherwise, huh? No, I, I'll just keep checking it out. But I was underwhelmed by this little story. And it is strange that we're doing another you know, alternate reality story. But uh, I guess that's all there is yeah, to Alternate do. reality feels like an excuse to not have to talk with you know, Kieran Gillen and Al Ewing and the people doing the core story. Oh, you can do whatever you want as an alternate universe, and it just kind of doesn't matter. And that makes me feel like, well, it, it kind of doesn't matter. So if there are listeners out there who think this is great or who read the next issue and think there's important stuff to talk about, please do let us know. We would love to hear any alternate opinions on this. It just didn't really float our boats. So yeah, I'm going to give this uh, maybe a fairly generous six out of ten. Yeah, that's exactly where I was at. So it's not the worst story I've ever read. It just didn't have any elements that made me care. Exactly. Okay. Something I do care more about is Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants number one. Uh, it's also called Sins of Sinister Year Ten Part Two Storms Seven. So I think that Part Two thing is numbering the whole Sins of Sinister event where just the book only called Sins of Sinister was part one, and this is part two. A little confusing, but that's where we are. Hey, it's alternate timeline, probably. It is written by, of course, Al Ewing, art by Paco Medina, colors by J. David Ramos, letters by Ariana Mayer, and design by Tom Muller with J. Bowen. Now, this book has a lot to do, especially with this whole 10, 100, 1,000 year structure we have. This is going to be, presumably, our only one-issue look at what Storm and the Brother is doing in this whole period. So Al Ewing has to give us a whole lot of setup and backstory and tell a story and link together all in one issue, and he does a pretty good job on that, but there's there's some bitch where you can tell, tell it's rushed. Now, yeah. one thing that's kind of cool is that this book seems to intentionally evoke the feeling of like a late 70s to mid-80s science fiction movie or TV show. Right? Parts of it feel like Star Wars or Battlestar Galactica or Mad Max. Like Storm here looks a lot like Tina Turner in uh, the Beyond Thunderdome movie. So I think, I think Al Ewing is doing that on purpose, which is, is kind of cool. What did you think of just the overall look and feel of the book? That's interesting. I didn't uh, think of that connection, but I definitely saw the Star Wars 
influence. And probably we got to give uh, Medina some credit for that. Um, I'm guessing the artist probably had a lot of say in the design. I'm sure. Was, was applied. Um, or or know, the designers, okay. right? Yeah, I almost, I almost actually felt like maybe it was a little, um, especially the Star Wars reference, it was maybe a little distracting for me. I, I didn't necessarily want this story to make me think of another story. So that bugged me. I think maybe if they just stuck with the Thunderdome or something less um, culturally relevant than Star Wars, I would have been happier. But setting that aside, the overall story I did like, I, I do think it's it's a little off-putting to think like, hey, I wanted like a, maybe another half issue <laughs> to flesh out this story. But I agree with you. They crammed a ton into it and mostly works. But they're, you know, we were talking about this offline like maybe one or two panels here and there would have helped explain what was going on and they could have still surprised us i wonder if al Ewing is using that 70s 80s kind of feel as an excuse for like the, the expository dialogue that he needed right in those movies and tv shows people explain things to each other and in this book he kind of had to have characters explain things to each other so maybe he reached for that as to try to make a virtue of that necessity and some cool stuff happens here with maybe Maybe one too many sudden but inevitable betrayals. It's not my favorite of what Al Ewing's done. I think his other X-Men Red stuff has been better than this. But it, it certainly moves the Sins of Sinister story along in a pretty rapid way. It, it answers some questions we had just from the previous book, which is always nice to see. Yeah, that part was very cool. I like that, that this moves the needle forward, felt essential. And some of the, the twists I actually thought were cool twists. But... Um, could have been delivered in a way where it would feel less confusing. And we'll get to that when we get yeah, to it. To, well, to give away the ending, our big question at the end of Sins of Sinister was, hey, who stole Sinister's lab? And this issue tells us that answer very straightforwardly. It was Destiny and Mystique using Storm of the Brotherhood to get done what they wanted to get done. So it's we got that answer very quickly, which is nice because it means there's going to be more mysteries and more reveals along the way rather than just one mystery he strings out for 11 issues. So our cast here is mostly what we've come to expect from X-Men Red. Well, no sunspot. We see him die when the planet Mars goes kablooey, and we add two new characters. Well, one brand new character and one sneaky return of a character. The brand new one, at least as far as I can tell, is John Ironfire. We don't learn much of his backstory, but presumably he's, you know, an Iraqi mutant. There are millions of them after all, or at least there were before the, the planet went kablooey. Uh, he is now on the Great Ring, possibly replacing Sunspot. And his deal is that he can transmute his own molten blood into any kind of metal and form that metal into weapons. In practical terms, he's, he's Hot Claws Wolverine, is what he is. He makes these Hot Claws, comes out of his arms, and he stabs people with it. But, you know, you need... Needs somebody to stab folks, and, and he's the one to do that for Storm. Now, the other not actually new character is, her name is Quick. Not Jesse Quick, not Speed. She's not actually a, a, a Flash character, but she seems like a Flash character. Uh, her actual name is Lulu or Lulo Marshall. It's not stated explicitly, but this has to be the same Lulo, how many Lulos can there be, from X-Men Red number six, which was one of those Judgment Day tie-in issues. In that issue, a human scientist named Dr. Craig Marshall, there's a scene at the beginning where he helps a little Iraqi girl named Lulo and her unnamed brother to escape from Oronos' attacks. I do remember that, and I forgot about that character. That's neat, Tyler. Yeah, uh, that was when we were looking at, at that. It was 
this this scene that didn't really seem to fit in so well. I mean, it, it set the stage what's going on from that perspective. And I think we thought that Dr. Craig Marshall was going to be a returning character. We haven't seen hide nor hair of him, but we're now 10 years later, and the now more grown up, no longer little girl, Lulo, she's now Lulo Marshall. So I guess she was adopted or took his last name, and she's a member of the Brotherhood. That's kind of neat. Yeah, and she has speedster-type powers. Okay, so we get this prelude bit to catch up anyone who didn't read Sins of Sinister Number 1 the way we did, but now we find Storm and her Brotherhood hanging out in space on a small chunk of what used to be Mars. How did they all survive? How do they build a sanctuary? Uh, Who knows? Don't worry about it. We don't have time for that. Uh, Destiny shows up and says that she has a message for Storm. And Storm's not too happy here with Ms. Adler. Seems that 10 years previous, Destiny had advised Storm to be patient, to not go on the offensive against Sinister, and Storm blames this advice for the whole loss of the planet and probably Sunspot's death and the deaths of all those millions of other mutants. And in fact, Storm doubts that Destiny may not really be here at all. She reads Destiny's body language as belonging to someone else. So, to find out, she has John Ironfire stab her. That's how you figure out who someone is, right? Just stab them and see what happens. It's like testing a cake. Well, granted, in the in this universe, I'm sure how many times has Mystique impersonated somebody? At some point, you just get annoyed. <laughs> and she has the healing powers from the state shape shifting. So why not stab her when you can? Yep, it is, of course, actually Mystique pretending to be Destiny. Gee, I wonder if she'll try a trick like that again this issue. Uh, so, but Mystique says she does actually come bearing a message from Destiny, just didn't want to risk Destiny here. So she did the, the camouflage thing. And that message is, well, we know what actually is the truth of Sinister's Moira engine, that all that needs to be done to undo this whole horrible timeline, you know, Sinister taking over the council, Mars getting all blowed up, all those dead people and dead mutants, all you got to do is find that particular cloned Moira and kill her, and bing, bang, boom, we're back where we started from. And Storm is immediately on board, uh, and I, she kind of has to be, because we're already halfway through this issue, and we, we got to get done with things. So what did you think of that that scene? I thought the scene was fine. It was a you know trick, which Mystique always does, and kind of gives you this hint that, like, oh, the team is one step ahead of her, right? They can mm-hmm. figure out what she is, and it's useful to get Storm the info about, you know, this is what we got to do in this conflict. So I was I was fine with it. It checks all the necessary boxes. It it kind of did it in a not not the most satisfying way, but we got to get things done here. We only have twenty two pages to do all this, so onward we go. And you get to see John and his power set. Yeah, we introduced these new characters, or you know, one and a half new characters, and, and that's fun to see. So now we jump immediately to I can never say this Muir Island, Muir Island. I'm gonna go with Muir Island. Uh, Mystique brings the whole crew there to the island, and they squabble among themselves a bit so that Quick can show off her powers. You know, she's a pretty standard speedster, nothing wrong with that. And this is the last time we actually see Mystique, looking like Mystique at least, appear on panel for a fairly long stretch. This will become important in a moment. Well, they then fight a series of sinister chimera. Uh, there's this group of maggot slash marrow combos. There's another group of Chimera that's not so well-defined, but there's definitely some rock slide, wrong slide in there, some kind of reptilian thing, some kind of Glob Herman thing, you know, just some your, your basic sinister goons. And these Chimera are defending a black sphere that I guess is itself a Chimera using genes from Unus the Untouchable, maybe more of those like genes in a 
in an object like the Shaw drive kind of situation, where it's not really a, a mutant, a person, it's just using the genes. And inside that sphere is Sinister's lab. And instead of trying to break into this unbreak into a bull sphere, Wizkid, maybe it's Wizkid, uses some gizmos to teleport the entire sphere somewhere else we worked on at their leisure. And Storm thinks it's been teleported back to her own base, but Wizkid is now revealed to be, who could have guessed, it's Mystique, playing the same kind of trick she did to lead off the story, but this time she says that she was intentionally doing bad body language all these years so that she could trick it. Whatever. It, it's kind of, aha, I, 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 you thought I was bad, but I was good. I was good at being bad, and now I tricked you. Okay, it's fine. Uh, now Mystique stabs Storm, you know, a little payback time there. Not fatally, I expect, given, you know, Storm's going to have to be important going forward. And then kind of just says, sayonara, suckers, and body slides away, leaving a bleeding Storm to vow revenge. So what, what did you think of this middle portion of the story. Um, I thought the action was interesting. I always get a kick out of these uh, chimera scenes, if they make sense. And I I think replacing Wizkid works for me because his power set is essentially building things, right? So you could take him out and then just get his technology. And that, you know, nobody asked him on the spot to build something. So it doesn't bother me that Mystique could impersonate him. That works. But the, the question, of course, is at what exact point did Mystique replace Wizkid, and what did she do with him? Is he, is he even still alive? He could be dead for all we know. Correct, yeah. So this is the, the mystery that I felt like needed another panel. Um, without tipping your hand, you could have had Storm basically talk about how they're going to attack uh, the Mer Island base like the next day everybody gets some rest, right, or something. Because it seems in the scene, like, when she just calls for, like, assemble the Brotherhood, that, like, Mystique would be in that room, and then everybody shows up, right? And then they body slide away. And if that's the case, then it makes no sense at what point she would have been able to replace Wizkid. Yeah, I wanted to you know, see the reveal and then go back and say, oh, aha, here in the background of the panel, I see this must have been when, but either it's too subtle for me or they didn't put that in. Because all we see is Mystique appears on Muir Island with the group and then squabbles there for a second with Wizkid. And then we go into a fight with the the Chimera, and we don't see Mystique as Mystique again until she reveals herself to have replaced Wizkid. So I'd like to know. We have the team above ground and the team below ground, right? Yeah. And part of the reveal is the team above ground. There's a Mystique up there, right? And then Quick notices that, I guess, the whatever vibration or something seems off when she's moving at hyperspeed. They realize then that, like, oh, the mystique that's above ground is actually just a hologram. And so that works. Okay. Right. Like, so, but it works better if what happens is, you know, Wizkid never actually goes on this mission and you've got mystique, hologram mystique, you know, from the beginning. Because otherwise, I don't, I don't understand what happened, right? She would have had to have, like, taken him out and then. Yeah. So, at, from you think that when they appeared on Weir Island, it was yes. hologram mystique. And Correct. Wizkid Mystique? Yes. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that, that's the only way that, we, that makes sense for me. Otherwise, it's like you're saying that like she took him out in the middle of battle, nobody noticed, and she spun up the hologram. It just seems like too much, right? It does push that mystery back to, still, you know, does, does Wizkid know what's anything going on? Did he not get the email that they were going on this mission? Yeah, I, I still want to know when, when it he happened. Wasn't on, he wasn't in the throne room during that, right. you know, Assemble the Brotherhood, right? When Mystique 
conveys the message from Destiny. And so this is why I really needed like a, you know, everybody leaves the room scene, because at that point that I can re- really easily wrap my head around the idea of like, he just got taken out, right? And she talks okay. about later how, you know, she was faking her tells, right? Her body signature just to like mislead them. And in reality, she could be a perfect dupe that they never would have detected, right? And she is later. So yeah, we that, get all that's that. what I thought they oversold a little bit, but that's okay. Okay, I, I, I feel a little bit better about it now, now that I understand the hologram thing. I still want to know some more, but it's it's better than I thought it was. Yeah, and it goes a little fast, right? So it's, it's a little tough. <laughs> yeah, again, it has to because this issue has so, so much to do. And we're not even done with it yet. We have a super quick final scene at the World Farm. And this is where the real Destiny is hanging out and where Miss Deke's been hanging out. And this is where they brought that that sphere that is Sinister's lab. Her real plan was to use the brother to find the Moira engine, but not to kill the Moira and undo this universe, but to protect that Moira. She doesn't want to reset that universe because she says, in this version of the world, Mystique is alive. And we know she had that whole new set of visions where she kept seeing Mystique dying. So she's perfectly fine with this horrible world because of that one fact. Uh, now, I don't know, does she have, I, if there is a, a Moira in there who's a save point, at some point that Moira has to die, right? Because just that's what people do. So I wonder if Destiny has one of those demutantifying guns because that, I guess, is the only way to make this timeline permanent is to have that Moira stop having the gene that lets her reset the universe when she dies. Because otherwise, we could stretch it out for a while, but it's going to be undone. So I'd, I'd like to see if that shows up maybe in year 100. We find out that, yeah, that Moira's been on ice and is still alive, but they're going to try to break in and, and zap her with a gun. And of course, they can't zap her with a gun because you and I know as readers this timeline has got to be undone. Even the other X-Men books are acting like this timeline's going to be undone. It's an interesting idea. I like how does he deal with, with that. I can imagine the Moira clones being chimeras themselves and having some sort of immortality gene mixed in with them so that essentially doesn't reset things. But it should be addressed, right? Because it's, I agree with you, it's a very obvious um, issue. And, and Destiny is smart enough to realize that this is only temporary unless she does something to make the whole Moira thing permanent. Yeah. There must be something though that's weird now that I think back, because wasn't one of the Hickman box box issues like a super far in the future version? Yes, where they were in the zoo at the end of like the end of time, right before the uh the merger with the techno uh what, the, what's maybe the she put in stasis in that one? Uh, the technarch. Yeah. Yes. With the phalanx, yeah. A- anyways, they they kept her alive somehow, right? In, in that timeline, so maybe there's a mechanical solution to the age issue. And they said that if the actual upload happens, then now it's beyond her power to undo. So that's why there was a time limit there. That's why Wolverine had to kill that Moira before the merger with the Technarchy happened. Oh, interesting, because they become so powerful they can avoid a reset. Right, it would kind of just change the whole nature of reality so much that it would it would override Moira. Which, I mean, we're going to see that. What What is the last issue of Sinister, Sinister here called? It, it had a word in it that I can't remember the name of it. Uh, Dominion, yes. That's the word I can't come up with. Dominion. So that would be, I mean, again, we know it's not going to actually stick like this, but that's the threat that if Dominion does happen, then Moira can't reset it. We do have one more reveal here on the very last page. And this, this really goes along with the whole world farm thing. 
because we see that Orbis Stellaris is here. He hangs out at the World Farm. That's where we've seen him before. And he seems to be at least semi-partnering here with Destiny. Yes. Now, we don't know. He does say there can be only one, which is another 1980s sci-fi reference, all you Highlander fans out there. Uh, he says there can be only one dot, dot, dot who has Dominion. So what I'm reading here is that at least this other Sinister, maybe the other other Sinisters as well, they're okay with this whole let's become a Dominion, but they all want to be the one who gets to be the Dominion. That's my read. I mean, that's a very Sinister attitude. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really play so well with each other. Yeah, yeah they roughly have the same agenda, but not they're not allied. And boy, this uh, this Orbis Stellaris inside the sphere looks a lot like Gateway, doesn't he? A Caucasian Gateway. Oh yeah, yeah, they're buddies for sure. <laughs> I, I did laugh at the strategically placed. Um, what is that? A uh, hexagon? Yeah, we don't know if he's wearing a loincloth like Gateway or if he's completely stark naked in there. Just to be more obnoxious, he's just like showing himself off to <laughs> Destiny here. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, she's blind as a mask on, so maybe she's protected from that. Yes. Well, yeah, so I thought this was a, a, a pretty solid issue. Again, not my favorite thing ever, not my favorite Al Ewing thing ever even, but it it moves the story along at a good click, and I am curious to see what else we're going to see in this 10-year time period, and I'm glad we got that one big question already answered. So, yeah, I guess I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. Yeah, I'm probably more of 7, 8, but in that range. The only thing we didn't talk about is they make a big deal out of Cable being merged with the mind of uh, Zylo, the Iraqi is like the living history. The historian, and yeah. Okay. I really didn't understand why they made a big point of that. It seemed to play zero role in the entire story and I guess just to seem like in the future. I don't know. Yeah, he has he has a new look to him and kind of that organic kind of look on the, sh- on the side of his face. Maybe that'll show up in the, in the future of the future, in the year 100 or maybe in one of the other year 10 things. But yeah, you're right. That did not really pay off outside of, hey, he looks kind of cool in the art now. It's a little odd. But in general, I'm interested, right? Like, good to see. But we were wondering, like, are the other Sinisters going to play into this story, right? And clearly, that we was see another the, big question. Yeah. first move of one of them, right? Like, Orbis Stellaris partnering with Mystique and Destiny to kind of take the reins away from our standard Mr. Sinister. Yeah, very good. So we continue to be interested in uh, this whole Sins of Sinister timeline. Again, even though we know it's going to be retconned, it's still a whole lot of fun along the way, and I'm I'm enjoying the, the fast pace of things. Yeah, me too. And, and last thing I'll say, just unrelated, I actually thought this was the coolest looking picture of the World Farm. I, uh, I never really thought of that location as that interesting, but to see it being so big that it's actually got planets inside of it. That's that's an excellent point right there on page twenty two. Yeah, you see this kind of almost like it reminds me like the how they move around in the Jetsons where people step into these tubes and just you know get sucked places pneumatically. Except there's whole planets in them, which is a a, a cool thing for the world farm to be. Yeah, and the the look of this the look of this whole book is really fantastic. It also makes me wonder though how how um, the team was able to get to. Or Miss Stellaris the last time, right? Like, if it's a, this large, like, how do you know where anyone is? Yeah, and we still don't know his connection with the progenitors, no relation to the celestial progenitor, right? Because this is their place, and we saw those three creepy characters in X-Men Red earlier. And we don't, there's, we're told they're super powerful, but we haven't really seen them do much. So I'm curious to see if we learn more about them. And those were our books for this week. Uh, our next week we have Nightcrawlers number one of three, 
written by Simon Spurrier, art also by Paco Medina, because remember, we're going to have the same artist for all three of the year 10, a different artist for all three of the year 100, and another artist for all three of the year 1000. So Paco Medina's been busy on all three of these books. And now Nightcrawler's number one next week. We also have X-Men number 19, not part of Sins of Sinister. That's Lord of the Brood part one, that brood story that will eventually cross over with Captain Marvel. And finally, we have Wolverine number 30, which looks to be the end of the Beast Agenda storyline. So as we've been saying for what seems like about 17 years now, maybe we'll get some closure on what Beast has been up to. I'm, I'm, I've lost hope, but somebody's going to tell him don't do that. And that's all we have to say for this week. Oh, except for I do have recommended reading. Uh, I was curious about Bishop. I didn't think this Bishop miniseries, at least so far, gave me what I wanted to know about Bishop. So I went back and read a miniseries from 2009 called The Lives and Times of Lucas Bishop. It's written by Dwayne Sverchinsky. And I think what was going on here is that Bishop has had a complicated, retconny, timey-wimey backstory. And this seems to have been an attempt to kind of streamline it and make it make sense. And I thought it was pretty cool. It goes very quickly in places, again, because it expects that the reader has read the issues that it's connecting. But you see Bishop in his home timeline. You see his grandmother, who may or may not be Storm. I don't know. He is Storm's grandson or just kind of looks like. I don't know. It's interesting, though. Uh, so, yeah, I recommend checking that out. It is on Marvel Unlimited, uh, 2009, Dwayne uh The Lives and Times of Lucas Bishop. And that's all we have to say for this week. So, Ruben, what do we say at the end of every episode of The Weird Dose of X? Yeah, read more X-Men comics. Bye-bye.